Tonight, uh, my topic in your summer series entitled Vital Information, What Every Christian Needs to Know, is about staying connected with one another and thereby avoiding the dangers of isolation. In just a minute, we'll look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, passage in verses 9 through 12, as kind of a jumping off point for this lesson. But basically, my, my basic premise here tonight, if, if you want to just get the sermon here in just a few words, and then you can nod off to sleep or do whatever you need to do, uh, the, the lesson is this. Christians, we need each other. We need each other. We need each other to help each other get through this life and to avoid the temptations and the tribulations that Satan places before us and to deal with those things in the way that God would have us to. So that's, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. You know, uh, the 17th century poet and clergyman, John Donne, had a poem that you may have learned when you were in school, and uh, it may be one that's familiar to you, and it's, it's called, uh, No Man is an Island. It says, No man is an island in and of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. You know, Dunn understood that we are all connected to one another. First of all, in the human race, wherever we may live and whatever we may believe or practice or whatever our uh, uh, jobs may be, wherever our relationships may be, we are all connected. But in the church, there's an even closer connection and a really more significant connection. You know, Dunn didn't think of this idea. He got it from Scripture, didn't he? Romans chapter 14, verse 7 reminds us that none of us lives our lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. We do need and depend on each other. And so tonight, I'd like for us just to talk about that idea. I'd like for us to begin with some, some definitions, because I think it's important that we understand what we're talking about. Uh, according to Merriam-Webster, there's three words that I'd like to define here. And the first one is the word alone. Alone simply means not involving or including anyone or anything else separate from other people or things. And you know, the idea of being alone or aloneness in and of itself is not a bad thing. We sing a song sometimes that says, I don't know a thing in this whole wide world that's worse than being alone. And I've always kind of grappled with that just a little bit because... Sometimes being alone is a good thing, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, also this evening, Lord willing. But I, I think the, the, the song means essentially being alone or separated from God. And certainly in that case, uh, that there is nothing worse in this whole wide world. Another word that I'd like for us to, to maybe clarify and define a little more specifically is lonely. It's connected with the idea of being alone, but, but it's a little bit different because lonely deals with the sad feelings that come from being apart from other people. So aloneness is a state of being, but 
loneliness is a state of mind. It has to do with more the way we feel about circumstances. And then the third word that I'd like for us to note is the word isolation. And being isolated means to put or keep someone or something in a place or situation that is separate from others. Sometimes isolation can be self-imposed, maybe for good reasons, and then sometimes others may isolate us, and that's where some of the difficulty might come about. So these are just some, some ideas or some concepts for us to, that I'd like for us to keep in mind this evening. Uh, I did a little bit of study and research about uh, aloneness and loneliness and isolation, and uh, I saw some studies that I thought were quite interesting with regard to this. There was one that was conducted in um, 2014 at UCLA, and a group of researchers took two groups of sixth graders, and one group of sixth graders, they sent them to a camp where they would be uh, outdoors and unplugged. No screens, no uh, iPads or computers or cell phones, and they had to interact with one another, with adults, and with their natural surroundings that they were, they were there. And then the other group of sixth graders that they studied went about their normal activities and uh, had their phones and their screens and all those other things. And then they assessed these two groups of sixth graders' ability to relate. And one of their findings was this. The time the participants spent engaging with other children and adults face-to-face seemed to make an important difference. The absence of screens, and they're talking about those iPads and phones, etc. The absence of screens meant children could rely only on face-to-face interaction when communicating during camp activities. Accordingly, the results suggest that digital screen time, even when used for social interaction, could reduce time spent developing skills in reading nonverbal cues of human emotion. Now, let me just say that in good old Middle Tennessee language, okay? Uh, when we spend all of our time on screens, even interacting with others on screens, we lose some of the ability to deal with each other face-to-face. That's what that study showed. Okay, there was, a, there was another uh, study that was done by a lady named Sherry Turkle, and she actually wrote a book based on this study called Alone Together. And she did an interview with NPR, National Public Radio, back in 2012, and uh, she talked about how technology is changing the way we communicate with one another. Uh, She says, for example, that the pull of these devices is so strong that we become used to them faster than anyone would have suspected. Now, let me just pause right here and ask you, have you walked out of the house and gotten in a panic because you left your phone laying on the counter? Or, uh, or some other device like that? Maybe, maybe your uh, Apple Watch? Something like that? I have. I, I freely admit that. I, I've sort of become addicted to those devices. She went on to say that devices are changing the way parents relate to their children, how friends interact, and, and why many people, both young and old, keep their devices hand in hand all the time, sometimes even while they sleep. Uh, she went on to say uh, that when asked why they preferred text messaging over face-to-face conversation, a group of teens and adults responded that when you're face-to-face, quote, you can't control what you're going to say, 
and you don't know how long it's going to take or where it could go. Um, But she believes that these perceived weaknesses are actually strengths of conversation, of actually talking to people face-to-face. Face-to-face interaction, she said, quote, uh, teaches skills of negotiation, of reading each other's emotion, of having, face, having to face the complexity of confrontation, dealing with complex emotion, and, and on and on. And her conclusion was this, that um, it is possible to be in constant digital communication, to be really plugged in, and yet still feel very much lonely. That's the difference between being alone and being lonely. The feeling is you're still lonely. In her interviews with adults and teenagers, she found people of all ages are drawn to their devices for a similar reason, and it's this. What is so seductive about texting, about keeping that phone on, about that little red light on the Blackberry or whatever, is you want to know who wants you. And you see, once again, that points up the fact that as human beings, we need each other. And one more study that I looked at in Psychology Today back in December of this past year, 2016, Uh, A couple of uh, psychologists who are actually professors at University of Southern California uh, also did a study, and they contrasted this idea of being alone versus being lonely. And they did um, put together a a kind of case study for us to consider. One was a guy named John who lives alone but is very social. He has many friends with whom he spends a lot of time. He sees these friends frequently. However, he feels sad and disappointed because his friendship don't seem to meet his needs. He doesn't derive a sense of connection to others and thereby a feeling of satisfaction. Despite his busy social life, he feels lonely. And then the other person that was sort of an amalgamation of people that they studied was a guy that they named Albert. Albert also lives alone, but he has two very close friends with whom uh, who he sees on a regular basis. And when he meets with them, He has a good time talking about current events, sports, and other things that they have in common. They share each other's thoughts and feelings about their lives. When he's not at work or in the company of others, he does not feel lonely because he spends time engaging in activities uh, that interest and energize him. They went on to point out that sometimes there are a lot of negative things that occur when we are more like the first than the second. Maybe with a group of friends, but never really connecting. For example, social isolation, depression, substance abuse is often connected to loneliness. Poor sleep, poor appetite, uh, even suicidal thoughts and behavior. And, and even there's physical characteristics of immune uh, dysfunction and cardiovascular dysfunction as well. So there's a, there's a lot of implications, both emotionally and physically, of loneliness. And I say all these things to say this. The Bible has the best advice, the best answer for us about any problem that we face, and especially about this problem of loneliness. And so I'd like for us to just simply uh, be reminded of that. But before I do that, I, one other thing I wanted to note uh, in, in her movie, Funny Girl, um, Barbara Streisand saying, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. We're children needing each other and yet letting our grown-up pride hide all the need inside, acting more like children than children. You see, it is important that as mature Christian adults, 
that we understand the importance of connecting with one another. The Ecclesiastes writer, Solomon, you might say Ecclesiastes is sort of a, a record of his experiment about life, about the struggles, the good and the bad, the negative, the, the difficult things of life. And the conclusion that he ultimately came to at the end of the chapter is to fear God and keep his commandments. But he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 about the idea of relationships and companionships, beginning at verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. So, so Solomon says, when we work together, it's a blessing. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And so he also points out that when there is a, a stumble along the way, uh, that it's important that we have someone who's there to lift us up. Furthermore, he goes on to say, if two lie down together, uh, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And, and that's the idea of companionship, that uh, relationships are important for companionship. And verse 12, if, anyone can, uh, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And, and the point that he makes there is that we can stand up against those principles and enemies that would have a tendency to fight against us. And that's really the basis for our understanding tonight. Did you know that there are several lonely people that are mentioned in the Bible? You ever think about it that way? It starts out in Genesis chapter 2. You remember that God said in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And of course, man was created and God saw that it was good. And then in chapter 2, the Bible says that God observed that it was not good for the man to be alone. And so God brought all the animals before Adam and he had them to name them. But the Bible says that of all the creation, there was not a suitable companion found for Adam. And so in the midst of this perfect paradise, a perfect world that God had created, for this man that was, was perfect as well, he said, there's something missing. What was missing was companionship. And of course, God made Eve, the woman, from the side of the man. And um, someone has pointed out that uh, this was done, this was taken from his side, so as not from his head to rule over him for, or from his feet to be his slave, from his side to be his companion, to be a support, to be an encouragement, to be a help. That's why God created woman, because man was alone. Man was lonely, and God saw that that need was there. And then also during the patriarchal era, you remember the story of Job. Job was, the Bible says, uh, one of the greatest men of his generation. And it describes of all of his wealth, of, of servants and uh, livestock and lands and houses and, and, a, and a wonderful family of ten children. But there was a conversation that took place in some realm, somewhere, uh, that's a, don't want to get too deeply into the story, but between Satan and God, and God said, uh, okay, Satan, you want to touch Job and test him? I'll allow it, but you can't kill him. You can't take his life. And, and so there was a series of tests that Job was put to, where his possessions were taken, his servants were taken, his, uh, his uh, flocks and his herds were taken, and ultimately his children were taken. And the Bible tells us that Job was left in sackcloth and ashes. Job was all alone. Even his wife turned against him. But notice Job's attitude 
at the end of Job chapter 1. He said, The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll go back to my grave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, in spite of the fact that Job was alone in effect, he still was able to maintain his relationship with God. So Job was a lonely person in the Bible because of the circumstances that happened to him. And then there's Moses, the great liberator and lawgiver. Moses, uh, a man that had to be convinced that he was the person to lead the children of of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and uh, ultimately took on that task and did just that. And he was a very responsible individual. He was a very capable individual in spite of his own a self-image of uh, misgivings and failings on his part. And uh, on one occasion, as recorded in Exodus chapter 18, uh, Moses' father-in-law came to visit him. I like this one because a father-in-law gets to give some advice to his son-in-law. But his father-in-law observed Moses. And you know, if, if we were in the business world today and we observed what Moses was doing here, we would say, that man is a go-getter. He deserves a raise. He's doing a great job. He's the best employee that we have. But what his father-in-law observed was that Moses was wearing himself out because people were coming to him from very early in the morning to late at night. And he was dealing with their issues, dealing with their problems. Some of those problems were great and some of those problems were small. His father-in-law said, this is not a good thing. You are wearing yourself out. He said, you should not be doing this job alone. And of course, His suggestion that Moses took to heart was, appoint some people to help you. And rather than trying to do the job of dozens of men, then get dozens of men to do the job. And so, taking his father-in-law's advice, Moses did just that, and only the big cases, the cases that couldn't be handled by others, came to Moses. And it was a blessing to Moses. But you see, Moses was lonely at work. Even though he was doing, working himself from morning till night, and we would say he was doing a great job, man, you're a hard worker, a wonderful thing. It wasn't good because he was trying to do it alone. So in that case, Moses was a lonely person. Then there's the story of Naomi as recorded in the the little book of Ruth. You remember that Naomi had a husband and two sons who married wives, and, and everything was good, but her husband died, and then her two sons died. And, and then one of her two daughter-in-laws left her, and, and Naomi said, my name shouldn't be Naomi, it should be Mara, which means bitter. She was bitter because the Bible says she was all alone. And of course, it was the encouraging words of Ruth that you know so well uh, when Ruth said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, there I will die, and there I'll be buried. And so, even though Naomi had lost everything of value and importance to her, she had this companion Ruth, and later was blessed by Boaz because of Ruth's being willing to stand beside her. This is a case where, in spite of circumstances that were beyond her control, Naomi felt alone. There was nothing she could do to overcome it, but Ruth helped her, and she was blessed as a result. You remember Elijah, the great prophet of old. In fact, when Jesus uh, took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, 
uh, there was there with Jesus on that occasion, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. In fact, when Jesus once asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am, one of the people that they said he was like was like Elijah. It's a powerful prophet of God. And yet, we find Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, right after he has confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and won that great victory and destroyed those hundreds of prophets of Baal, we find that a, that a, a death warrant has been put out on him by uh, the king and the queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And what did Elijah do? Did he stand up to these people? No. Instead, he cried out to God, I'm all alone. And he, he, he wished that he was dead. And of course, God reminded him that he was not alone. That there were still a number of people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And in spite of the fact that, that God encouraged him, Elijah felt lonely. Jeremiah is a, a, another prophet of God that often felt in despair because he felt like he was the only one trying to do God's will. Uh, as, a, as a teenager, some speculate he could have been as young as 18 or 19 years old when God called him to, to uh, take a message that was very, a very desperate message to the people of Judah that uh, they were going to be put into bondage and captivity. And as a result, people didn't want to hear that. And so they rejected him and they pushed him away and they ultimately even punished him and imprisoned him. And, and Jeremiah expressed to God on more than one occasion, for example, in chapter 15, verses 15 through 18, that he felt like he was all alone, even though he was trying to do what was right. And this just reminds us that even when we're trying to do right, we can still feel lonely. We can still feel isolated from all others. And then in the New Testament, I love the story of Jesus and his relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And of course, you know what happens in John 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and all the implications of that. But before that, in Luke chapter 10, the Bible tells us that as Jesus came to their house, Martha comes to him and he, she says to him, Lord, I want you, and I'm paraphrasing here, Lord, I want you to fuss at my sister Mary because I'm having to do all this work all by myself. And of course, Jesus reminds her that Mary has chosen the better things. He didn't say that what she was doing was not good because it was good and it was necessary. But he reminded her that there are some things that matter more than just the temporal, the temporary things of this life. But Martha felt alone even though she was busy working and trying to serve the Lord. And then, there's Jesus. Now you say, now didn't Jesus at times um, intentionally spend time alone? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want you to go with me now to that scene on Calvary. Think about all the things that Jesus went through, especially in the last few hours leading up to the cross. Think about the physical abuse and punishment that he took. The scourging and the nails and the crown of thorns and, and being smitten, being hit. Then think about the emotional pain and suffering of the ridicule, the mocking, uh, the, the farce of the trials that he had gone through. Knowing that every one of those things were, were lies that were being told about him. That, that he could have, at a moment's notice, called... Uh, Thousands of angels to rescue him. Think about the, the pain and suffering connected with that. And then as Jesus was there on the cross, you remember that phrase that's often 
transliterated in our Bibles, not translated, but transliterated that says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, I submit to you that at least for that moment in time, when Jesus took upon himself all the sins of the world that had been committed, that would be committed, and God, as it were, turned his face from him, he felt alone. Jesus felt lonely. You see, loneliness is not something that's new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And good people throughout time, people that scriptures hold up as people worth emulating, imitating, have been lonely. So if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling disconnected, then take heart tonight that there are some that have trod that path before you. Now, I want, you, I want us to note that, as I said, Jesus often spent time intentionally alone. Each of the Gospels records occasions when he was alone. He went apart to a mountain to pray. He separated himself from his disciples when they were on a boat. Um, uh, other occasions when Jesus was alone in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and in John chapter 8, especially in John chapter 16, Jesus tells us how it was that he could be alone and not be lonely. And it's because he knew that his Father was always with him. And I think that's a very important point for us to consider. That even when we might be alone and begin to feel lonely, begin to feel isolated, we need to remember like Jesus did on many occasions during his short ministry here on earth, he was aware very much that God was with him. In fact, when Jesus commissioned us, to go into all the world and take the gospel to all of creation, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and so forth. You remember what he said in closing there? He said, I'll be with you. And so his abiding presence with us, the, the presence of God and of his Holy Spirit and of his Son with us ought to encourage us when we feel alone, just like it did Jesus the Christ. The early Christians spent a lot of time together. You know, I've, I've often thought, if we could somehow or another transport Christians from the first century over into our 21st century today, I wonder what they would think. I've often wondered that. I think they would be amazed at some of our buildings, some of our structures. I think, they would, I think there's a lot of things they would be completely amazed at. But you know what I think? I think for the most part, they'd be able to connect with us. I think they would, I think they would see us worshiping in a very similar way than they did. I think they would see us uh, preaching and teaching the same things that they were preaching and teaching. Uh, I believe that they would say, you know, I, I know those people. Uh, we're separated by 20 centuries, but I, I know who they are, and I'm connected to them, and I understand them. But I, I think they would say, there's one thing about you guys that I don't get. Why don't you spend more time together? You know, uh, we have sort of reduced our time spent together in many instances, and I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush here, but in many instances, we've reduced our time together to maybe a couple of hours on Sunday, maybe a few moments together on a Wednesday evening, maybe a, another few special occasions through the, through the year. But what I see in the first century is Christians being together on a regular basis, on a daily basis. The Bible says daily in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Jesus the Christ. 
at least a dozen times in the book of Acts, the word together is mentioned in connection to the, the early Christians being together, meeting together, working together, praying together, encouraging each other together. Acts chapter 1. Of course, in Acts chapter 2, we see that they were together and had all things in common. That was one of the things that attracted people in the world to them because they, they enjoyed this togetherness. In Acts chapter 4, uh, they, they were uh, praying about the situation that Peter and John found themselves in, being punished for healing a man in the temple. They were praying together. They were praying together in Acts chapter 12 when James was beheaded to, to take courage with one another. They, instead of scattering, they pulled together. In Acts chapter 14, they came together to encourage missionaries as they went forth. In Acts chapter 15, they came together to discuss some problems at the so-called Jerusalem conference. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we see that they met together on the first day of the week to break bread. They were together. Together. And, and throughout Scriptures, not just in the book of Acts, but throughout the Scriptures, we are admonished to pray together, to work together, to encourage each other together, to assemble together. Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul says, uh, ask the Romans to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf. In Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 4, he reminds us that we are knit together in the body of Christ like the body is knit together with joints and ligaments and, and, and muscles, like it's tied together. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says we're to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, he said that we're to be encouraged having been knit together in love. And in Colossians 2, 19, again, the body image of being held together by ligaments that hold the joints together. Hebrews 10, 25, the idea of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Together, together, together. You know, there are at least 175 verses in the New Testament that tell us how we are to relate to one another, to each other. Uh, and Jesus summarized it like this. New commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You see, the mark of discipleship that Jesus said we should have is our togetherness. Does that mean we're always going to agree? Does that mean we're not going to have problems? Of course not. In fact, we're admonished to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. We're admonished to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But we're to do that together. Christians, we need each other. So I want to close this out with some concrete ideas and suggestions, sort of the now what of this lesson, okay? And the first thing is just a summary of what we've talked about. God knows that we need each other, and nothing, and I'm going to say this in the strongest possible terms, nothing can replace time spent together, studying, praying, working, encouraging, and on and on you could go with the list, each other. Not Facebook, not Instagram, not Snapchat, not Twitter, not text messages, not emails, not phone calls. Nothing can replace being together and doing these things together. Psychology tells us that. Scripture tells us that. 
both by example and by admonition, by command, by teaching. We are to be together and and do all these things together. Secondly, I want to remind you that Satan loves to discourage us by isolating us and telling us no one cares. No one else is trying. No one else will know if you commit that sin. No one is there for you. You know, there's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'd like for us to to look at that. It's it's a passage that we're very familiar with regard to uh, Satan. He's likened to their... uh, a roaring lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour. That's a very picturesque image, isn't it? But I want you to think about that for just a moment. It's not just that the lion is strong and mighty. How does the lion hunt? The lion hunts in a group together, and he seeks to isolate his prey. A lion seeks to cut out the young or the weak or the very old or sometimes a perfectly healthy animal out of the herd. As long as the lion can get that animal isolated, the lion will devour. And I've thought about that in this context. Because in this context, the Bible talks about elders. He says, Therefore I exhort you uh, elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not voluntary, uh, voluntarily, or rather, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And of course, these are characteristics that elders ought to have. But I want you to notice, he places a responsibility on elders to be among the flock and to be doing these things. And that implies that the flock is together, and that the elders are connected to the flock and the flock to the elders. He goes on to say um, in verse 5, You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, Satan wants to tell you, you can do this by yourself. You don't need anybody else. Our culture says that sometimes, doesn't it? Be an individual. Be your own person. Don't listen to anybody. Do your own thing. But this passage tells us that that's what Satan wants us to know. He wants to isolate us. And then he can attack like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so part of being aware is not only being vigilant ourselves individually, but being together collectively. And so the third and final thing that I'd like to remind you about tonight is that we have a responsibility to be accountable. Now, I know we're all going to stand before God and give an account of the things that we've done in the flesh, whether they be good or evil. We have a responsibility to be accountable to God. And if we can't be or if no one else will help us to be accountable or hold us accountable, then ultimately we ought to be accountable to God. That's why we're never alone here on the face of this earth. But I want you to notice also that we're accountable to other people. We're accountable as husbands to our wives and wives to our husbands. Try marriage without accountability. It doesn't work. We're accountable as Christians 
to our elders, to our shepherds. And we've just looked at that very briefly, that passage from 1 Peter 5, as well as other passages, Hebrews 13, 17, other passages as well. We have a responsibility because they have a responsibility to us. Therefore, we have a responsibility to them. We're, we're accountable to our Sunday school teacher, someone who is taking the time to, to share the Word of God with us and to help us dig into it, to explore it, and to challenge us to understand what God's Word has to say. We're accountable to them. We're responsible for not only what they teach, but for how we accept that. We're accountable to our pew neighbor. Think about the people that sit around you on the Lord's Day. Are they here tonight? Have they been here the last couple of weeks? Have they been here lately? Where are they? Have you checked on them? We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are accountable to someone. You might say, well, you know, I'm just one, and I'm, I'm not really responsible. It's all I can do to take care of myself and maybe my family, and that's about it. Isn't that the same attitude that Cain had when he killed Abel? God confronted him. Where's your brother Abel? He said, am I my brother's keeper? God's answer was, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. In essence, God said, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your brother. We are responsible for each other and accountable to each other. So be accountable and hold someone accountable. In love, in consideration, in compassion, always. But we need to be accountable to one another. Christian, we need to hear, stay connected. Because Satan wants to isolate us and he wants to destroy us.